A good afternoon to everybody. Thank you so much for choosing to be here on this uh, gray Sunday afternoon, which we can only hope and pray results in some kind of moisture uh, happening as a result of it. Um, and so we're here uh, to have you know, an important conversation, uh, hopefully to learn. Uh, we are here with experts uh, in the field to talk about uh, the, both the history uh, of the issues that we're dealing with um, as well as what's happening currently. Uh, and so, as always, our Tikkun Olam committee has put together an amazing program for us, and we are so grateful for the work uh, that they continue to do, along with Rabbi Hyman, um, to help create these uh, opportunities for us to come locally to our own shul uh, to learn about things that are uh, important to us. Some of you may know, some of you may not, that uh, the four years between uh, university and rabbinical school, I worked for four years at the Feminist Women's Health Center in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, in the field of women's uh, reproductive care, uh, information and treatment for STDs, donor insemination for women who wanted to become pregnant, and abortion care up to 26 weeks for women who uh, were pregnant. We were, uh, we, it is a feminist institution, so you had to learn from the ground up as a health educator. And uh, I became a clinic supervisor and so um, felt what, what kind of a responsibility it is to hold these women's lives uh, and their futures in, in our care. And I can tell you, when you're on the front lines of seeing the condition of women's lives and seeing the importance of access to reproductive health care, I mean, it is one of the most critical issues and one of the ones that we don't talk about a lot. When people used to ask me what I do in the line at Burger King, you know, I would say I'm a librarian. Because <laughs> you just get tired of right, the incredible amount of heat and uh, passion and emotion around the issue of especially abortion care, but really women's sexuality and reproductive rights in general seems to be a really, and it hasn't changed, we're going to hear more about what has changed and what hasn't changed, but uh, this is a critical time, and it's a critical issue, uh, and and I'm so glad that, uh, that our Tikkun Olam folks uh, have their finger on the pulse of what is really threatening to the quality of women's lives uh, in our country that is one of the freest in the world, unless you start looking at what's actually happening, which uh, our folks are going to do. And so uh, I'd like to uh, introduce... Um, Jean Schrodel. Uh, Dr. Schrodel teaches at Claremont Graduate uh, University, where she serves as director of the Applied Women's Studies Program. She's chair of the Department of Politics and Policy and dean of the School of Politics and Economics. She's the author of Is the Fetus a Person? A Comparison of Policies Across the 50 States, states which analyzed her award-winning research on three major fetal policy issues, drug use by pregnant women, abortion, and third-party fetal killings. And um, Dr. Schrodel will be speaking with us today. She's going to help moderate as well, but she's going to be speaking about uh, the, the issues related to women's reproductive rights up until Roe v. Wade. John, Dr. John Erickson joins us as well, the Director of Public Affairs for Planned Parenthood Advocacy Project Los Angeles County Action Fund. Say, right, what do you do? You could just say librarian from now on. <laughs> 
As Director of Public Affairs, uh, Dr. Erickson develops and implements a public affairs strategy designed to achieve the agency's advocacy goals, including public education, direct lobbying of elected officials, and community organizing, uh, and, and manage day-to-day -day operations of the Public Affairs Department and Planned Parenthood Advocacy Project Los Angeles County, including grant management, electoral work, election analysis, public education, candidate endorsement, fundraising, community organizing, and board development and engagement. And in your free time, yeah. Dr. He's in the library. Dr. Erickson uh, will be speaking uh, about uh, again the, the same issues um, from Roe v. Wade through uh, the Obama years and that administration. And we have with us uh, Ruth Dawson, who as policy counsel with the LGBTQ Gender and Reproductive Justice Project of the ACLU of Southern California, uh, works on uh, focusing on expanding access to reproductive and sexual health care services, eliminating religious restrictions on health care provision, protecting access to confidential health care and quality sex education, and upholding the health and dignity of incarcerated women. Uh, Ms. Dawson's advocacy concentrates on the intersection of reproductive and economic justice, promoting the rights of pregnant and parenting workers. Uh, Ruth will soon be moving to Washington, D.C. Uh, to do federal policy advocacy on family planning with the Guttmacher Institute. So we are grateful we get some of the last time uh, that you are here uh, in town. So please give a warm welcome to our panel. And I'll turn it over okay. to you. Well, I want to start by saying I have never said I was a librarian, but as a <laughs> political scientist who studies American politics, I usually on airplanes tell people I'm an economist. It shuts them up. <laughs> I do not wish to spend my time on an airplane discussing. Thank you. Okay. So that being said, so I will try librarian next time. I appreciate the thought. The value of fetal life has always been inextricably linked to the status of women within society. But only roughly in the last half century has this been widely acknowledged. Although it's important to note, and I have to say that because we're in a synagogue, that Jewish scholars have been something of an outlier in the sense that many of their commentaries did explicitly include references to the woman. However, the dominant view, sorry guys, didn't come from Judaism, dominant views about fetal status have revolved around two interconnected dimensions, a moral nexus and a legal one, both of which throughout most of history have left the woman out. Okay, worth noting. And fetal status has always been an issue when we are thinking about reproductive health and in particular the termination of pregnancies. Early Western philosophical and religious thought focused upon the formation of the soul with some, including Pythagoras and I can always Hippocratic Oath, Hippocrates, how do you say his name? Thank you, okay believing that um, the soul originated at conception and that all abortion should be illegal, prohibited at any point, 
But others, most notably Aristotle, disagreed. And Aristotle had an early version of the, what you want to think of as the trimester framework, because Aristotle believed that the human organism prior to birth gradually became a person, gained a soul over three stages, a vegetable stage, an animal stage, and then a rational, i.e. human stage. So as I said, I think of this as a precursor, if you will, to Roe. Plato, interestingly, went even further and endorsed abortion, particularly for pregnancies among older women. So you can see a difference in thought, but generally speaking, the views of both Plato and Aristotle were dominant during the pre-Christian era. Now what this meant is that in a legal sense, that abortion was commonly practiced in the Mediterranean area prior to Christian era, but that the views about it and its acceptability declined dramatically as Christianity gained adherence, resulting in criminal sanctions being mandated during the reign of Severus, A.D. 193 to 211. Church fathers, please note, not mothers, church fathers, challenged the dominant view that the fetus was a, quote, appendage of the woman and argued that abortion after ensoulment occurred was murder. The debates among these Christian um, people who became very influential and dominated for a stretch, the kind of legal thinking, the debates largely revolved around the question of when did ensoulment occur? At what point did the soul enter into the human organism? With some believing that it occurred earlier in male embryos than it occurred in female embryos. Just just wanted to let you in on this little history. Male embryos, they thought, got a soul at 40 days, female ones at 80 days. Others instead believed it occurred at quickening, which is a phrase many of us have not heard. Some of you probably never heard. Some of the older people probably have heard before. Quickening is the point when the woman can feel the fetus moving within her for the first time. Some point, four months, maybe five months, right in that period. And that that made a distinction between early and late-term abortions with perhaps an early-term abortion being a minor sin, a venal sin, and a later abortion, a major sin. But we're talking here today about the United States, but we get much of our legal, our laws, coming from British common law, and I'm not the lawyer There's a lawyer over here, so I can get into trouble with her. But the law, British common law, picked up Christian religion's distinction between early and late-term abortion, which became part of British common law. But they used, again, quickening as that demarcation point. However, within the American colonies, those of you who have studied history know the early colonies were very separate from one another 
a lot of land and you know pretty scary land, pretty isolated. So you found a great deal of variance across the colonies. Um, in some colonies early on, all abortions were outlawed. Others followed what was called the born alive rule, where there was no sin until killing after the fetus, now a baby, was born alive. So a lot of variance in the American colonies. Um, and the, the born alive rule had some adherence because it avoided what was a kind of squishiness. When did quickening occur? Is the woman telling the truth when she first felt? Okay, birth, you, you know, it's pretty clear. No birth, birth. Um, not a lot of ambiguity there. But basically, prior to the 1830s, um, so we're now moved from colonies to the United States, there's not much data. In fact, it's pretty lousy what little data there is about abortion and terminations of pregnancy in the United States. I mean, we know there were folk medical practitioners, some of whom gave and had recipes for herbal remedies for stopping a pregnancy. Um, you got a little more things when things involving quinine and iodine. But they, were, they would actually talk in the um, handbooks about mechanisms to release obstructed menses or to regulate menstruation. Uh, the common cold was actually a euphemism for a woman being pregnant. So there were treatments for the common cold. Um, but what happened is in the mid-19th century, the American Medical Association came into existence. Did you know this was really important for this particular history? The AMA. And the AMA, which was formed in 1847, wanted to, among other things, you know, gain control of medical practices, including practices related to pregnancy. So the AMA led the effort to criminalize abortion across the country. And part of it was playing into arguments about um, eugenics, wanting to ensure that the right genes were carried on and reproducing. But the AMA was instrumental. And they passed laws, got by 1910, every single state had a ban on abortion. And some of these allowed an exception, medical exception, but again, which kept the power under the control of those physicians. Um, and at least during much of the early period, um, there was very, very aggressive enforcement of the laws. I mean, it literally driving midwifery largely out of existence. Pardon? There were no women doctors then, right. Yep, you got it. Yep. And the midwives were female, yes. Um, 20th century America. Um, remember, abortion was illegal if we moved to the 20th century. So 
data about the prevalence of abortion pre-Roe, I used the word squishy earlier in another context, really, really squishy here. Um, there is not good data how many abortions were performed annually prior to Roe. But what we do know, and we do know some things that are worth noting, some of which are getting lost in the discussions today. What we do know is that every year in the United States, during the period pre-Roe, the 20 years prior to Roe, every year somewhere between five to 10,000 women died annually because of botched abortions. Another upwards of 350,000 women annually suffered injuries due to unsafe abortions. What was the problem? The major issue was septus, a often urinary tract infection that is caused by the use of unsterile medical instruments and practices. Many hospitals actually had entire wards, literally entire wards, that were devoted to nothing other than caring for women who had side effects from back alley abortions, typically septus. One Chicago hospital treated 5,000 women a year for septus caused by unsafe abortion. So just start thinking about that the next time you see one of those um, I, I'll use the term pro-life in quotation marks, billboards, with a fully formed baby that's supposedly, you know, early term abortion. But, you know, the part that's lost is the lives of these women. Um, so there were a funny series, funny, interesting, use whatever word you want, confluence, series of events um, that jointly led to reforms in the law. These included something, model law, model legislation that was performed, was um, written by a group called the American Law Institute, ALI. They create model laws, get circulated, they're still in existence. In 1962, they developed and promulgated a model law that would allow exceptions for, quote, physical and mental health of the woman. Um, also, if the fetus had, quote, grave physical or mental defects, and of course, the standard rape or incest. This law was proposed, looked like our model law wasn't going anywhere. There was no energy, no impetus, no interest in changing the law, but something happened. Um, maybe a few of you are old enough to remember this, Thalidomide. Thalidomide was a drug that was given to women who had morning sickness for nausea. Um, thalidomide turned out to produce very, very deformed fetuses. The pictures, if you've never seen them, look some up. The babies that were born look like a cross between a porpoise and a human being. And I am not joking. I mean, it's just terrible physical and mental deformities. Just as the 
anger and the energy and interest was dying down from the thalidomide um, crises. There was a major outbreak of German measles in the United States. Over 20,000 deformed babies were born due to being, the mother being exposed to German measles and catching the measles. And what this meant was that these women were going, who were pregnant were going to their doctors asking for abortions. And the doctors, some would do it, many would not, because the doctors would be sent to prison if they provided an abortion. So you had this situation where now the doctors were getting squeezed also. So remember I mentioned the AMA a little while ago? Well, the AMA now came out and wanted abortion legalized after, you know, 120 some years being pushing the opposite. Now, when their members were being affected by the women coming to them and the possibility of prison, the AMA got on board with the ACLU and NARAL to lobby for legalization. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the whole process, um, but 14 states um, passed laws permitting therapeutic abortions along the lines as developed by the ALI. Four more states, Alaska, Hawaii, Washington, my home, I might add, and New York, completely repealed limits on early abortions. But at that point, the impetus, you know, they hit roadblocks in the Midwest. In particular, the Catholic Church began actively mobilizing against it, so some people decided to pursue a legal strategy to get abortion reform. Um, so that led us to Roe. A lot involved with Roe, also with Doe, the other one. I'm not going to go into much of that, but I'll give you just a few little thoughts. Pardon? Okay. Can I answer a question? Okay, sorry. Just. Yeah, yes, it was. Thank you. Um, the legal challenge um, in what became Roe v. Wade was based on the constitutional guarantees of equal protection and privacy that had been developed in a 1965 birth control case, you know, Griswold v. Connecticut, where the courts said, yes, there are zones of privacy based on first, third, fourth, fifth, and ninth amendments, and that this carried over from contraception to the decisions about abortions. So 1973, Roe v. Wade. The court, on a 7-2 to two vote, established a sliding scale where the right of the woman was weighed against the right of the state at various times during a pregnancy to intervene. The justices agreed that a woman had a privacy right and that the state could only intervene when there was a compelling interest. Compelling is a high standard among lawyers in the law. Um, so they went on and said in the first trimester, the first three months, remember Aristotle? 
Okay, maybe it's the vegetable stage, sorry. Um, first three months, the court said there was no compelling interest for the state to intervene. Please note, states didn't have to intervene, but they could later and second and third intervene under certain circumstances. They don't have to. But during the second trimester, the justices said the state could find a compelling interest in protecting the life of the woman and impose restrictions for the woman's health. And only during the third trimester, the final trimester, could there be, they find a compelling interest in the potential life of the fetus as sufficiently great to override the woman's privacy rights. At this point, the state could indeed prohibit abortions except to protect the woman's life. But remember, states did not have to find you know, a compelling interest. It said they could. But the other thing to remember about Roe v. Wade, one of the differences is that Roe, for the first time, really placed the woman and the unborn human organism as having competing and conflicting interests. That had never existed before. And on that cheerful note, <laughs> I will turn it over. Go for it. I'm, I'm going to get up and talk. Ooh, Why not? Right? I'm going to get up and stretch my legs. All right. um, first of all, I want to thank Gina for putting this panel together. I want to give you a round of applause because yeah. it's really hard. I also am very happy that I get to share the stage with two women I greatly admire. Uh, Jean started the master's program, the Applied Women's Studies program that I actually got my master's from many years ago. And when was it, the, when was it started? Whenever. Um, A long time ago. I I was the first man to graduate from that program. So I want to thank her for that. And Ruth serves on an organization that I deeply respect and serve on the board for. So it's a wonderful time to be here. Um, My name is John Erickson. I'm the director of public affairs for Planned Parenthood Advocacy Project Los Angeles County Action Fund. I'm just going to call it PPAP for the rest of you for right now. And I get the really easy task of going from Roe v. Wade to Obama. Um, So... Jean really set it up for something I really want you all to think about. Roe was decided seven to two. And these days we're so used to five to four, four to four sometimes. Um, A while ago, it seems like a dream. Um, And then sometimes four to five. And those decisions maybe not directly benefiting the communities in which they're going rightly for for the decisions. So Roe v. Wade at the time was decided by a 72 decision to take many accounts for women's rights to access to um, a safe and legal abortion into consideration. It's 1973. The world is a much different place from what it is now. Some may can, we can maybe have an argument about that later if you want to. But in understanding the ways in which where we were to where we are now right before Obama. And I'm kind of going to hit on a couple of themes here. One, political, right, um, and how the politicalization of a woman's right to a safe and legal abortion has progressed and become a hot topic issue. And then um, secondly, um, the role that uh, 
advocates and other individuals have played in pushing back against really draconian laws that have tried to take away a woman's right to a safe and legal abortion. And then three, ultimately where we are in the courts, and then I know Ruth is probably going to talk about all the fun things that are happening in the federal judiciary at the moment. Um, so when we really start to look at the ways in which Roe v. Wade was decided, obviously that sets a lot of flares up for advocates on both sides of the issue. In my opinion, there's only one side of the issue. But for the sake of the argument, because we are academics in some way, shape, or form, we do have to present both sides, right? So you have 1973, you have a woman's right to a safe and legal abortion established. And so what happens as a result? Women get a net medically necessary procedure that they can get under the law. And so what type of option does this present for states kind of um, talking about? States start electing legislators that might want to restrict those laws, come into play for a woman's right when a, a woman's, uh, well, how did you phrase it, Jean? I can't remember you phrased it so well at the end. Um, the health of the woman comes into risk or the health of the fetus comes into risk. Um, and so they started taking those laws on themselves to dictate what happens to a woman. And so many states start passing laws or trying ways to slowly restrict and chip away at Roe, right? And then we start having the ways in which the federal government doesn't want taxpayer dollars, because remember, it's all about money, um, going to a woman's right to a safe and legal abortion. So then we really ultimately have the Hyde Amendment. How many of you here know what the Hyde Amendment is, right? So the Hyde Amendment was an amendment that came about after Roe, one year after Roe, thank you, I was going to say one year, but that's why Ruth is here for me, because she's going to be my check. Um, and the Hyde Amendment basically said, that no tax dollars can be used for any type of an abortion. And so lock, stock and barrel, that's it. So you hear this even now today. And many people like Obama and other progressive presidents have signed Hyde into law because it's put on a budgetary hearing or some other type of legislative package. So um, after Roe, one year right away, they're even coming forward to make sure that a woman um, can't utilize any type of federal tax dollars to get a safe and legal abortion. So that places undue restrictions upon women who can't afford to get the procedure or it even goes further down the road when you have women of color, um, people with low income, they can't use access to or access money that is actually out there to help them do just this. So take a little journey on forward and now we start seeing some cases in the courts and people want to restrict abortion because it's safe and legal and what happens is people don't like it. It becomes a political issue. Um, Planned Parenthood Federation of America, the new president, Alexis McGill Johnson, said most recently a really great quote I want to give you here. The right did not make abortion, the, we, Planned Parenthood, did not make abortion political. The other side did. And so how do people have to fight back against a politicized issue, which is just actually an issue in conversation about healthcare? Well, it goes into politics. And that's where people like PPAP and other advocates come into play. So then we start looking at the ways in which Planned Parenthood and other groups come on and they take on cases for people um, to make sure uh, the right to a safe and legal abortion continues. So then we have a court case called Planned Parenthood v. Casey. Um, Planned Parenthood v. Casey is probably next to Roe and Griswold the other iconic case right now that really comes about with access to abortion rights. Um, however, the one thing, I won't go into the legalities about Planned Parenthood Casey because it is very specific, um, is that there's a conversation about an undue burden placed upon a woman. Um, and this undue burden is going to come about in court cases 
pre uh, during Obama's tenure, like Whole Woman's Health, um, and other ways in which the court decided that almost creating kind of like a litmus test, as you will, that laws that exist within these states that are trying to restrict access to abortion, um, if they place an undue burden upon the woman, they're automatically unconstitutional. So um, the Supreme Court, for most of its time, um, has agreed upon precedent, um, stare decisis. Um, what we are seeing right now um, within the courts um, is that precedent might not matter much longer. Um, and as a result, these court cases like Thoreau, um, the access to privacy, which is so integral to so many other constitutional rights that many of us care about, the right to gay marriage, is deeply tied to reproductive rights and how access to privacy and the right to privacy come into play. Um, Griswold v. Connecticut, undue burden, the ways in which we're all protected, to then moving on to the ways in which federal tax dollars or advocates try to fight for or against access access to safe and legal abortion. So we then continue to move on through the federal landscape because more and more states are trying to pass laws to restrict a woman's right. Um, how many of you know what trap laws are called? So these are laws that states pass called targeted laws against reproductive assistance providers. So laws are passed by state let trap. Yeah, it's a funny, it's a funny acronym. Um, but these laws are passed as a way in which to combat Roe. So Roe is still the law of the land, and as a result, states, and many of which, I think it's like, how many states are there, like 26, 27, right now that have trap laws on the books that if Roe v. Wade were to be overturned, their abortion is automatically illegal in that state. So when you look at the ways in which states have, since 1973, been progressing slowly to make sure that the right to a safe and legal abortion in their state is completely gone, is very scary. However, they've also placed undue burdens upon women to try to access this right, right? So the right to abortion, abortion in general, you hear me say this word a lot, it's been really political. A lot of people have not freely said the word abortion a lot of the times, political candidates, presidential candidates, they don't say it, right? But I'm saying it because it's to destigmatize the actual word itself and the issue, because by the way, abortion is a safe and legal procedure. Um, and unlike Tulsi Gabbard, we don't need it to be safe, legal, and rare. Um, and that's my dig at Tulsi, but that's okay for right now. However, what I'm trying to, you can laugh, I try to make it funny, because it's really dark and sometimes when we're talking about some of this stuff, like we're like, ooh, right? Um, but more so importantly right now is that you're seeing this issue come center fold for how people are talking about it on the campaign trail. Um, so we have um, President Clinton being elected. He then did say abortion should be safe, legal, and rare. However, we continue to push forward. He elects amazing justices and puts them on the Supreme Court like Ruth Bader Ginsburg um, and so other justices to make this issue forefront to protect Roe. It has always been around there. And how are you going to protect Roe politically? How are advocates going to push for justices or further laws in their states to push for Roe to make sure it's safe? And then you have the election of opposite side individuals who may not want to uphold Roe. So then you have the president, George H.W. Bush, who gets up there and he elects 
several justices when Sandra Day O'Connor comes off, puts in Justice Alito, puts in Justice Roberts, all these individuals to politicize, further politicize Roe v. Wade to potentially overturn it, right? It's a numbers game at this point. And then, however, luckily, we get a president named Obama who, for all of his great ways, continue to push a progressive positive message around a woman's right to safe and legal abortion while also having to uphold certain ways in which the Hyde Amendment, he continued to sign that into law, as well as dealing with other political pressures from the House of Representatives to the Senate being controlled by anti-women's reproductive health care individuals. So the rise of the Tea Party, the rise of anti-Roe activists taking forth and going into the House of Representatives puts a lot of individuals that are in these offices of power in a really difficult position so they can appoint Supreme Court justices that uphold Roe when they interview them, but at the same time they have to maybe sign the Hyde Amendment back into law because there's no way they can get it through other the House of Representatives, the Senate, or how it really comes to them. So this kind of leads me down to understanding I love Obama, but the ways in which we have to look at how the federal judiciary itself has become the political game that is really going to shape this narrative for the next 40 to 50 years, much of my life, and the ways in which um, ever since um, Bork wasn't appointed to Supreme Court, um, it really started then with a very liberal president named Nixon, um, and he was denied that. You can laugh at that one. That's a funny joke. Um, but the other side of the aisle really said, how can we win the rights that we can't seem to get through congressionally? Right? We take it to the courts. So ever since that moment, there has been a packing of the judiciary part of our branches of government to put in anti-women's reproductive health care champions, in this case, anti-LGBT candidates, anti-woman candidates, anti-civil rights candidates, anti-voting rights candidates, you name it. They've got a resume to fit it. And that has been going on for about 35 years. And so right now, when Obama was going through um, the Senate, which was controlled by Republicans, um, refused to appoint justices that he would put forward. All you hear in the news currently right now is... Trump appoints another justice, Trump appoints another justice who is deemed unnecessary by the American Bar Association, you know, small little organizations that don't have, don't know what they're doing apparently, but they do. Um, and that is where they have won, right? We have to admit to that, we have to understand that, and we have to push back against it. So Obama, um, at the same time when Justice Scalia passed away while serving on the court, put forth Merrick Garland, it became a political issue. So these issues such as abortion, gay rights, all of these things have been politicized to the point where now we have the Supreme Court of the United States becoming almost a partisan body, right? And so at the time when the court was divided four to four, um, they made it a political issue because the Senate oversees the appointment of justices. And so, therefore, they didn't hear Merrick Garland, waited for the election to happen. And unfortunately, the election did not go the way um, many people expected it to. And then, therefore, Trump, when he was elected, was able to appoint Neil Gorsuch in that position. Um, Additionally, when you look at that, the composition of the court begins to change. So we're going through Obama. I'm going to stop in a second because I'm starting to ramble. But what I have to say to you is that what happens when we look at the Senate and we look at these issues we care about so much, right? So here in California, the right to a safe and legal abortion, should anything ever happen to Roe, remains. 
So many states, many um, progressive individuals, polit uh, politicians for that matter, saw this coming. Um, the, for example, Supervisor Sheila Kuehl, who represents, I believe, this area, um, saw this coming when she was in the assembly. And so what did she do? She codified Roe within the state constitution of California to make sure that if anything were to ever happen to Roe, the right to a safe and legal abortion remains here in California. Other states have done that as well. Um, just most recently, New York, the state of New York, right? We all like to think of New York as a liberal state. Well, their state Senate really wasn't. Um, and they flipped it. And so as a result of that, they codified Roe in their state constitution just a year and a half ago. Other states have done the same. I like to use the gay marriage court cases as an example here, where we talk about how when gay marriage started to become legal in various states, it became a state-to-state -state issue, right? Republicans really love states' issues until it doesn't impact them. Um, however, that's what will happen if Roe v. Wade is overturned or um, basically made null and void, kind of like the death by a thousand cuts scenario that if you listen to the news, you kind of hear. And so abortion, Roe v. Wade will go down to a state-by-state -state issue if the Supreme Court does uh, decide to do what we think they probably will be doing in the next four to five years as these court cases come about, of many of which uh, Ruth will start talking about. I, that's why I want to say the work that PPAP does, that I get to work with, with an amazing team of individuals, is we fight for, we advocate, and we help elect women's reproductive health care champions across California, as well as the country, to make sure that we say not on our watch and that we push back against an anti-women's reproductive health care message. And this is a nonpartisan issue. We endorse Republicans. We endorse Democrats. Maybe we'll endorse a Green Party candidate one day. We don't know, right? But what I try to mean is that this issue, Roe v. Wade, women's reproductive health care, is a nonpartisan issue. I just got done talking to you about how it's all partisan. It's actually not partisan because it's about health care and it's about access to a medically necessary procedure that people may need to get sometime in their lifetime. And so when you sit there and you see these things happening in the other states, um, I encourage you all, if I leave you with an action step, and I'm sure we'll have some conversations later, is to call your friends, call your family members in states where maybe Roe isn't codified in their state constitution or where individuals may need to hear your story if you want to share your story as well. That goes so far into helping destigmatize this issue, which from Aristotle apparently right, um, has been always out in the forefront. Because here in California, we like to say we live in a little bubble, right? We live in this little liberal bubble, but not everybody else has access to that liberal bubble. And it's our job to make sure that we fight like hell, to make sure that Roe remains safe, and that no matter what, a woman has the right and can access the care to get a safe and legal abortion here, um, or wherever she needs to. So with that, I'm going to stop, and I'm going to pass it on to Ruth. Hi, everybody. Are we good with audio? Yeah. Woo, this is new for me. Um, so I'm so excited to be here with all of you today and with you too. I feel like I'm newly fired up, um, especially that this many people would come out on such a cozy afternoon to talk about abortion rights, like really warms my heart. Um, so I'm um, Ruth Dawson. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. I am a policy counsel at the ACLU of Southern California. So that means I'm a lawyer, but I just don't litigate anymore, which is 
great for me. Um, and I do a lot of kind of macro policy work. Um, to borrow a phrase that John just used, um, I want to start by telling everyone that abortion is still legal in all 50 states. Full stop. Um, and the ACLU is and will continue to fight like hell to make sure that it stays that way. Um, I come to this work from a public health background. So I got my law degree at the same time I got my master's in public health. And I come to abortion rights in particular from a perspective of reality and what works. And we know that if abortion is outlawed, the number of abortions do not actually go down. Right? As was mentioned earlier, uh, maternal mortality and morbidity go through the roof, but the number of abortions stay constant. And we know this through examples, you know, through time and space um, of, out, of abortions being restricted or outlawed. And so I think, you know, aside from all of my kind of moral foundations in this work, um, pragmatism really drives um, a lot of, of my work here. Um, and I think they say that, you know, if a woman wants to be pregnant, uh, don't discount the lengths she will go to to become pregnant. And if she doesn't want to be pregnant, don't discount the lengths she'll go to to not become pregnant, right? Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about abortion rights under the Trump administration, which is so much fun. Um, yes, a lot of joy to share. Um, so you have a good foundation of what's happening in the courts. Um, Obviously, we are not in a great um, landscape right now, federally. Um, there are many challenges to abortion rights that are not direct assaults on Roe. Um, and I think it's important to talk a little bit about those just so that we know that there are other things, um, not really at the margins. They, they really directly affect abortion access and abortion rights, um, but they're not necessarily direct legal challenges to Roe. So we have, for example, the Jane Doe case. Can I see a show of hands? Who has heard about the Jane Doe case? Okay, a few. So um, this case actually is an ACLU case started under the Obama administration back when the Obama administration was doing the right thing generally, but they were giving money to um, certain service providers to care for unaccompanied minors who had come to the US, many of whom, um, these young women, had been assaulted, uh, raped, either in their home countries or on their way to the United States. They come to the United States, they are unaccompanied minors, right? So by definition, typically you know, 15 to 17, um, and are in the custody of the state. And so, the U.S. government was giving grants to largely Catholic organizations to care for those young people um, while their immigration proceedings were ongoing. Many of the, those young people asked for contraception, emergency contraception, or abortion, right? Um, and those Catholic institutions that had gotten money from the government to care for those young people we're not allowing them to um, actually get out and get their abortion procedures or contraception. Um, so we sued the Obama administration back in the day over this. Um, of course, with the changing of the guard with the Trump administration, right, that he actually put as the head of that agency somebody who is uh, virulently anti-abortion himself. 
And so it went from being a situation where we were suing the government for giving money to people for doing bad things to suing the government for the things they were doing as well. Um, and actually, Scott Lloyd is the name of that person. Um, he himself, as the head of this agency, the Office of Refugee Resettlement in the United States, would personally review each young girl's chart to see if she was able to have an abortion. And it was his personal determination based on his uh, ideology that, surprise, in every case she was not um, allowed to have that abortion. And so the good news is that every single one of those young people who we know about, we have sued about, it did go up to the, Supreme, or to the DC Circuit rather, not to the Supreme Court, um, and every one of those young women have been able to get their procedures. Um, but that is one piece of, you know, kind of showing the intersections, right, of different identities. This is not somebody who is free to leave an institution by herself and walk across the street. These are people who are, um, you know, they are not technically in immigration detention, not technically in a jail or prison, but they are not free to go, right? Um, and there are often language barriers, obviously, um, you know, socioeconomic status, income issues there as well. Um, so that is the Jane Doe kind of area of cases. Um, and those young women, I have to say, I was able to work with a couple of them myself in past years, um, and they are just incredibly brave. You know, they know what they want, they have self-determination, they know why they want an abortion procedure, and they are not afraid to tell you. Um, and it was some of the most inspiring work that I have done in this realm. Um, Another area of threat is the Title X regulations. So speaking of kind of, you know, our uh, progressive president, uh, Nixon, um, President Nixon also started the Title X program way back in the day, which um, the exclusive purpose of Title X funding stream is to provide family planning services. So that means birth control, right? Um, it is not abortion specific, but it is kind of broadly um, uh, reproductive health care and family planning. Um, the Trump administration, in order to get to the abortion issue, has basically um, put restrictions on anybody who gets Title X funding. You can't do all sorts of things, right? And one of the things you cannot do if you want to get this massive amount of funding to do your work um, is have any sort of overlap with abortion services. So. Title X funding can't go to abortion services, right? But it also can't go to a clinic where you, somebody walks in for birth control, for example, they say, I want an IUD, which long-acting reversible contraception, very exciting these days, right? That's kind of the, um, one of our most kind of uh, promising long-acting reversible, right? Um, it is one of the most effective, cost-efficient ways um, to prevent pregnancy. Um, somebody comes in asking for an IUD. Turns out that person is pregnant. That person says, oh, well, clearly, I don't want to be pregnant. Um, you know, can I, where do I go for abortion services? Um, the Trump administration has said that that clinic cannot even tell that patient where they can go for the health care they need, right? So it's basically a gag rule internally in those places. Um, unfortunately, uh, we know that that's not how healthcare, health services work, right? Um, those clinics, those physicians, those nurses know that in, in order to uh, provide quality, comprehensive health care, they have to give that referral, right? And that is actually where that court case hinges on is like, what is a referral? Um, so Planned Parenthood has actually announced that they will be pulling out of the Title X program. They would rather not get that massive stream of, of money 
um, to provide services because they will not compromise their values in that way. So thank you to Planned Parenthood, but also, you know, mad as hell, right? We're all very mad about that in particular. Um, that uh, has been challenged um, through kind of the Administrative Procedures Act, right? This is not a substantive challenge, but it is more a how did this regulation happen? Is this a proper um, exercise of administrative power? Um, on the part of the Trump administration. That case was just heard before an en banc panel of the Ninth Circuit about a month ago, and we have no idea when um, the answer will come down, the decision will come down about that piece. But that is just one other way that, you know, they're, they're getting really tricky um, and really creative, and I will say that anti-abortion folks have been doing this um, kind of, it's, it's like whack-a-mole, right? It's one thing pops up, you hit it down. Another thing pops up, you hit it down. Um, and every time, even if there's a court case to the contrary, they'll try something just slightly to the left and see if that sticks, right? And so there are so many resources that are going into fighting all of these issues at the margins. Um, in terms of direct challenges coming to Roe these days, so as John mentioned, the composition of the Supreme Court has changed quite a bit. Um, I will say, just from kind of a personal perspective, la I'm in my absolute dream job at the ACLU. Uh, every day I get to do exactly what I want to do and kind of work toward the change that I hope to see. So I couldn't ask for a better job, even though I'm leaving to go to another dream job, but that's fine. It's been a wonderful six and a half years at the ACLU. <laughs> I know. We want it. Ruth and I are also very good we, personal yes. friends, so I'm like, I'm not over it yet. So. We, work, we work together a lot. I fly, like I literally leave LA uh, this coming Saturday. Um, but um, when I heard that Justice Kennedy was stepping down and he had over his career kind of slowly gone toward the left in terms of a lot of social issues, right? For example, um, the marriage equality cases, even some abortion rights cases. So Holman's Health, for example, in 2016, which was the most uh, kind of impactful abortion rights decision in 20 years, he voted on, quote unquote, our side. Um, when he announced as the swing vote that he was stepping down, I almost quit my job and went to work on a Senate campaign like that because I figured if we lose that seat, all could be lost for 30, 40 years, right? And I still kind of feel that dread, and I think a lot of people still feel that dread um, that I know. So um, that is real. And um, the state-level restrictions, like I was talking about, kind of the whack-a-mole um, restrictions have been happening since about 2010, 2011. There was this trend, huge trend, sponsored by ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council, right, kind of um, the evil network um, that writes all sorts of model bills, you know, model gun rights legislation, Coke, yes, it's Coke money, Coke brothers money, to be quite frank, um, right, stand your ground laws, for example, um, abortion, anti-abortion legislation, um, money and politics legislation, all sorts of things that that group would like to see ideologically spread throughout the U.S. They write a nice model bill, send it to all the state-level legislators across the country. A lot of times um, we have seen that the legislators don't even take off the heading before they submit it to judicial counsel, right? So it'll straight up say ALEC at the top. Um, but we're seeing these copycat bills kind of across the country. And in 2010, 2011, there were literally this wave started of hundreds of those, and we would see the same things. We saw Planned Parenthood defunding bills across the state like 
like whoa across the country at the state level. We saw 20-week abortion bans. We saw um, forced ultrasound requirements, right? Um, all of these things that really did kind of chip away things at the states. However, the vast majority of those were, you know, after the court cases, um, came out our way because the Constitution, as interpreted by the Supreme Court, protected against those um, restrictions, right? But with this change of the Supreme Court, now really all of the anti-abortion folks in the states see this as red meat, right? It is time to go for it. It is time to pass the most restrictive laws we can imagine so that if they make their way up, they might have a chance of um, actually turning over Roe for the country. And so, for example, what we're seeing, of course, um, these six-week abortion bans folks have heard of. So um, the idea is, you know, I won't go into kind of the heartbeat or uh, exactly what that means, but um, it's based on this idea that after six weeks, a fetus has a heartbeat, right? Science says it's not actually a heartbeat, it is more of a, you know, it is something else entirely, but it is a flicker of sorts. And so that is kind of the narrative that the anti-abortion folks have really grasped onto. And they say at six weeks, you shouldn't be able to have an abortion because, um, you know, that pregnancy or that fetus is a, a baby or whatever the, you know, kind of mythology around that is. And of course, when does life begin is a whole other complex question for which I am going to buy uh, my uh, friend's book here as soon as we leave this room. <laughs> um, so... Uh, those six-week bans, the good news is that at this point, as of early October, so literally uh, earlier this month, all six-week abortion bans in the country have been blocked. So that is the good news, that the courts have stood up, they have followed the Constitution, um, and those have not progressed. Um, there are several ways that other kind of challenges can reach up to the Supreme Court, um, and one is going to reach the Supreme Court um, shortly. So... I think it's important to talk a little bit about how the Supreme Court works. Um, a lot of people, when um, uh, Justice Kavanaugh, pains me to say, um, uh, was actually kind of enthroned on the Supreme Court, people were saying, oh, no, this means abortion is going to die tomorrow, right? That's not actually how it works. The Supreme Court cannot just decide something sua sponte or on their own. Do we have any lawyers in the room? Yeah. All right. Um, but instead, it has to have a case or controversy in front of it, right? So it couldn't just, the Supreme Court couldn't just convene tomorrow and decide something unless it has been asked to decide a particular issue in front of it. Um, however, um, what happened is uh, a case about a trap law. So as John was talking about trap laws, trap laws are targeted regulations of abortion providers it is like, I'm coming for you, and how can I make your life more difficult, right? So abortion providers need to um, do things that other providers, doctors, clinics don't have to do. For example, I need you to have, you know, three bathrooms on the third floor. For example, I need you to have, um, you know, hallways wide enough for three gurneys to pass through. Um, for example, I, you know, I need you, doctor, to have admitting privileges at a local hospital, even though that local hospital doesn't have to play ball with you, right? Um, it's always that kind of sound on their surface, like they are actually potentially helping um, patients' health and women's health, but of course really have the, um, that's why it's insidious, right? Um, it has, they really have the effect of just putting abortion providers out of business because practically it's impossible to provide those services. And so 
what happened was in Louisiana, um, there's a law requiring doctors who perform abortions at clinics to have admitting privileges at local hospitals, which sounds reasonable, right? Um, but that's, first of all, abortion is incredibly safe. The number of times that people go to like have an abortion, a, a quote-unquote surgical abortion, an in-clinic abortion, and have to go to the hospital for um, complications is lower than almost any comparable procedure. Like it's an outpatient procedure, it is incredibly safe. Um, and also, that's also not really how it works, right? If you have a procedure, say you have your gallbladder out or something, and then you start feeling ill and you might have an infection or something, you just go to the hospital. The hospital does not need you to bring your first gallbladder surgeon with you, right, to address your concern, um, right? And so um, the issue here is that in many states that are um, hostile to abortion rights, um, there are no doctors in state who perform abortions. So the doctors will fly in maybe, you know, once a week to perform abortions, once a month to perform abortions, and the hospitals might have something like um, uh, requirements around residency, right? Like you must live in our county or practice in our county, you know, 10 days a month or something to get admitting privileges. Anyway, so it's really just kind of, um, uh, kind of chunking that down as much as they can. So in Louisiana... Louisiana has a law that requires doctors to have admitting privileges to hospitals. Again, this is a regulation targeting abortion providers in particular. And the Fifth Circuit, so one step under the Supreme Court, said, yeah, that's fine, and upheld the law, even though it was challenged. The problem with that is that only three years ago, in mm -hmm. 2016, did the Supreme Court decide those laws are bunk and they serve no mm -hmm. medical purpose, and they are unconstitutional. And so the Fifth Circuit basically wasn't following orders. They were not following precedent. They were not listening to their bosses at the Supreme Court, and instead um, decided to kind of make, a, you know, if you want to call it an activist judge kind of decision to uphold an unconstitutional law. And so the Supreme Court um, announced recently, just within the last couple of weeks, that they will be taking that case. So the Louisiana case, um, they will be taking um, this term. And so um, it is a little bit scary because mm -hmm. the question of abortion rights will be in front of the Supreme Court for the first time since the Gorsuch and um, Kavanaugh Supreme Court has convened. Um, but they're not deciding on something. Uh, they most likely will not get to the question, the foundational question of Roe or the foundational question of pa Planned Parenthood v. Casey as to whether abortion itself is illegal. They're kind of operating on um, the restriction kind of death by a thousand cuts level. Um, but they will be addressing abortion this term. Um, yeah, I could go on and on. Ruth, can I pick sure. up on something? Because what I think this, you can hear me? I think this, I turned it back on. Because I think you were really, both of you were really great because they were both talking about how sneaky these little stealth kind of things. <laughs> and, you know, cutting away an abortion, but they also are doing things um, that don't appear to be about abortion but are about abortion. So, for example... The, I don't know if you've heard of the Unborn Victims of Violence Act, okay, which is, you know, holds that if someone commits a crime, 
that is a federal crime or on federal property that results in the death of the human organism at any stage of development, that person has committed murder. Okay? That's setting the precedent that the human organism from any point, not just conception, because this then moves to fertilized yeah. eggs. Pennsylvania State has a similar kind of a law. So they're not about abortion, but it's setting in people's minds the idea of legal personhood from fertilization onwards. And it was interesting because when the Pennsylvania law was being debated within the state legislature, um, someone mentioned, one of the legislators asked the bill's main sponsor, well, what if you're at a fertility clinic and you accidentally knock over a Petri dish? Um, are you a mass murderer? And the sponsor said yes. So they're using a series of other kinds of things. Um, also, you've probably heard some about women who use um, drugs or drink alcohol during pregnancy and then lose um, the fetus, miscarry or something, um, being charged with manslaughter and in some case um, uh, delivery of drugs to minors, murder, manslaughter, a whole series of these kinds of things. Not officially about abortion, but what they're doing is creating a wide body of both law, but also perceptions in people's minds, a public relations campaign, a political campaign that will lay the groundwork for a reversal in Roe and the criminalization of abortion across the board. Yeah, we've seen um, just since, what, in the last two years, I want to say almost a year and a half, upwards to 20 abortion bans in states across the country. Yeah. And some of them, the state legislatures, I think it was Louisiana, were so brazen that they knew the law was unconstitutional, but they literally said, because Kavanaugh is on the Supreme mm -hmm. yeah. Court now, we know that we can finally overturn Roe. Yeah. I mean, it is that brazen. I mean, and we're talking about institutions that basically just funnel bills to people. They know exactly what they are doing. So some of these bills vary in whatever criminalization. Um, we've probably read it or heard on the news that some bills jail the doctors uh, for 99 years to life. There's, um, I want to say it is the Louisiana bill that if a doctor it provides a woman the abortion in, a, in the case of rape, like if the woman is raped, for example, and she goes to get an abortion, the doctor serves a longer prison term than the rapist who raped the woman. Oh, jeez. And so that's the ways in which they're, they're, and there's a lot of methods that I know Ruth talked about and how they're trying to get up to the Supreme Court. Scary enough, this court case, Louisiana versus Gee, was, it's like three or four years old. Mm -hmm. So 2016-ish, 2015-ish, right? So that's how long it takes to get up to the Supreme Court. Um, these court cases that have all been blocked and all the ways in which they're actually not, they're not only just trying to get to the Supreme Court, that's like not this year, 
2021, 2022, 2023. These are all ways in which this will be the normal process in which when the Supreme Court in early October decides they, what court cases they're going to take on that term, you might start hearing they're taking on this abortion case yeah. or this case or that case. It's going to become a no normal um, procedure. And so the ways in which these laws are so brazen, they're putting stuff in there. This is what my yeah. favorite, not my favorite, but it's my favorite. The fetus in the Georgia law um, can actually earn income mm -hmm. tax yes. credit. Yes. Um, yeah. And, and the whole purpose is to establish personhood mm -hmm. yeah. within yeah. to Legal overturn personhood. Roe, to establish yeah. that personhood. Yeah. And at six weeks, I'm not, I'm not a woman. I'm, I'm not a biological woman. I identify as he, him, his. Um, thank you for using your pronouns. <laughs> but I have sisters and a mother, as we all probably do, or a mother in some way, shape, or form. Um, most women don't know they're pregnant at six weeks. And so that type of the heartbeat bill, the personhood aspect of it, or just these other ways. Um, and the last thing I'm going to say before, I'm sure we'll talk about other things, is that um, in Missouri, um, some of you probably have heard in the news, the last remaining abortion clinic is a Planned Parenthood health center there. Um, so 1.1 million women of reproductive age live in Missouri where if, they, if that clinic is gone, will no longer have access to their reproductive futures, meaning it would be the first state in the entire nation to no longer have an abortion provider. The same thing with Louisiana versus Gee. There's a four remaining abortion providers in Louisiana. If this law is upheld, probably three of them will probably have to close, meaning there'll be one as well. Um, but in Missouri, um, the law was blocked. Thank you, ACLU. Um, they were the leading litigants. Um, but uh, that bill now is going through another hurdle, and this is kind of a whole new level of tomfoolery, as I call it. It's not a scientific term, but I'm going to use it. Um, where the Department of Public Health and Senior Services in Missouri, there are administrative officials in there that are trying to deny the license for the, the Planned Parenthood Health Center itself to even operate, saying that they've done crazy things that they have not done and, you know, like, like the bottle's supposed to be here and not there. Like, you know, just weird things. So no more license, right? Because there are anti-women's reproductive health care people, not just in the legislature, but within departments doing the taxpayers' jobs. To, their, their job is a public service, right? And so that is going to be actually heard right now. There's another administrative court hearing. So within the next couple of weeks, we could hear even the outcome of that decision. So there's always a whack-a-mole, right? There's always yeah. some way in which it can happen um, and why we always have to fight back. And I'm going to have to quiet yeah. but anything. If I can just say, I think... Something that is an interesting idea because of this death by a thousand cuts, because it is whack-a-mole. Um, I kind of thought, as somebody who's very interested in voting rights, as we discussed before the panel, that's kind of other than the area I practice in, I think the most interesting thing for me because that is, you know, voting rights establish the game, right? That's the rules of the game before you even play the game. So they are so foundational mm -hmm. to the rest of our democracy. Um, the Voting Rights Act, before it was completely uh, eviscerated in 2014. Not completely. Okay, we can sorry. talk about that. We can talk about that. Um, Pre-clearance <laughs> as a concept, right, yeah. is, is interesting to me because 
uh, basically the Voting Rights Act said um, to certain states um, and municipalities that before enacting any sort of restriction on voting, basically they had to get it pre-cleared, yeah. right? So it wasn't just reactive, it was actually pro a proactive um, restraint. And that at least one uh, presidential candidate who I will, uh, well, I'll say, uh, candidate Harris, actually, um, her uh, platform actually includes pre-clearance for any sort of restrictions on reproductive rights, which I think is a fascinating idea, right? Um, and it would mean that we wouldn't have to necessarily uh, kind of play catch-up and play whack-a-mole as we've continued to do and has been draining the resources of the advocacy and litigation organizations for all of these years, but instead the government would be able to provide that check and balance before these restrictions went into place. And, and because we've been so immersed in the legalities of the Supreme Court decisions, the Supreme Court is even, and correct me if I'm wrong, maybe it's not the Supreme Court, but they are even now trying to stop um, organizations like the ACLU, Planned Parenthood, or other places that take on a case on behalf of a person and litigating it in front of the Supreme Court. So we have to go back to the Jane Doe's, the Rose. Um, these individuals take on a significant burden personally. The Supreme Court is trying to cut the ways in which organizations take on these court cases, seed them up through the appellate circuit all the way up to the Supreme Court to get a decision. They're trying to now place the burden solely on individuals again. That's why it's the Roe v. Wade, Jane Doe decisions that are kind of really um, problematic and the Jane Doe decision is really you probably heard about it when the Kavanaugh appointment was going on because Justice Kavanaugh when he was on the DC circuit denied access for an undocumented um, minor to get um, yeah. the abortion that she was trying to do in the ways in which uh, Ruth uh, pointed out she was able to get the procedure at the end but that's why abortion rights advocates were so among many other reasons mm -hmm. um, signaling the red alarm um, that this is a problem. Um, so there, and people, I mean, a lot of you probably might have not just heard about that, what I just said about the, now you, a Jane Doe will have to take on this huge burden, right? Talk about significant burden. So now you think about the ways in which, start telling that to people and researching that because you as lawyers know the ways in which that could be a problem for years to come. Well, you've talked about there being one clinic in, the, in a state. Um, and I think we, we think, oh, well, there's an abortion clinic in that state. But part of it is about how far something is for these women to access reproductive care. So if they want an abortion, a lot of these women are challenged to come up with the money for the procedure in the first place. Yeah. Now you have to have somebody who can drive you six hours to the one abortion clinic. Or if there's three in Louisiana, it could still be, you know, a really long trip to get to that clinic. You have to get an appointment. You have to get out of school. You have to make all the arrangements. And then you have to stay overnight in a hotel uh, often because some of these procedures are two-day procedures. And as much as she's trying to make those arrangements, every delay increases both how far uh, in gestation she is and that also affects the price post 12 weeks so now she's finally got the money together and the money for the hotel and the money for the gas and someone to drive her and she's now a week past what the price was 
last week, and now she has to come up with that money. So it's yeah. how far yeah. far care is for these women is a really, really uh, important part of whether or not they have access to this care. And just so everyone knows about Title X, I'm going through all my talking points in my head right now, but the Title X regulations, how many of you know what a crisis pregnancy center is? Yep. So crisis pregnancy centers present themselves as presenting all the options of, like, any other women's reproductive health care clinic, but they actually don't. They don't talk about abortion. They don't offer abortion. They won't refer you out. They literally try to delay you long enough so that way you no longer have act, you no longer have the option but to have the child. Um, so the Title X funding, Planned Parenthood, Planned Parenthood was a part, Planned Parenthood health centers were a part of Title X since its inception in the 1970s. Um, this is the first time they've ever had to pull out of it um, since then, but you want to know who's getting the funding now? Crisis pregnancy centers. So they are getting government assistance to completely missuade individuals from safe legal medical procedures. Okay, I'm going to, since I am supposedly the moderator, um, I'm going to jump in because we've got a whole stack of questions that I'm hopefully we'll be able to get to. Some of them, as I did my quick glancing, are very similar. So if someone has the same one, please note I might not read your exact wording, but okay, we'll do our best. Um, So the first question is, what can we as individuals do to protect abortion rights in states where those rights are being eroded? Okay, guys. I have some ideas. So um, (laughs) I think... uh, There are so many donations to, for example, the ACLU, to Planned Parenthood. I think those donations are very important. Thank you, everybody, who I'm sure there are donors in this room. Um, At the same time, there are others who have been doing the work in these states for many years that are not uh, the Planned Parenthood or the ACLU. I would recommend looking up the National Network of Abortion Funds. Um, Most states have an abortion fund here in California. (laughs) In California, we have Access Women's Health Justice is what it's called. Um, and it is a fantastic abortion fund. So these organizations are hyper-local. They know what the people who are pregnant who need abortion in their particular jurisdictions need and how to provide those services. And then the national group is called the National Network of Abortion Funds. Um, in California in particular, you know, so donating money is fantastic. That money will actually go to helping people uh, get a ride to the clinic, um, have childcare. We know many people who seek abortions are already parents. Um, you know, have a hotel room if they need kind of in the next county over, right? Like make that practical connection from A to B that is beyond um, the procedure itself or maybe even pay for the procedure itself. Um, Access Women's Health Justice here in California, in addition to giving money directly to them, you can be trained as a practical support volunteer. I am trained and I do this once in a while. My mother, who is up in Santa Cruz in Northern California, who's retired, does this like it's her job and she loves it and she is called to actually take somebody, for example, from Santa Cruz all the way up to Oakland, stay with them all day, you know, if you have anesthesia, you need to be driven home and then drives them home, right? And maybe gets them a meal on the way home or, you know, helps people actually connect from A to B. So if you are a person with resources, not to make assumptions because we're in the Palisades, but if you feel like you have time or resources to, to give, actually helping people make those connections as a practical support volunteer, allowing people who come to Los Angeles to stay in your back house if they need to the night before their procedure. If they're coming in from, for example, you know, 
Arizona. We don't know what's going to happen in the next couple of years. California is likely to become a haven state for abortion care. And I will tell you that the doctors and lawyers here, we are coordinating to make sure that we have a strong network, but we really need people to kind of provide that secondary practical support. So access women's health justice. Look it up. Can I add something? Yes. Jumping in. Not only does it mean helping various entities that are directly involved in the provision of abortion services, I would say the best thing that one can do for these other states is support political candidates who are pro-choice. Okay? Emily's List, for example, Mm -hmm. but there's a number of other groups, but you look at the states where there are close races, where your money can make a difference. Don't waste your money giving it to candidates generally in California. I mean, look, sorry, some. You can sometimes. sometimes. Don't worry, we'll talk after. But, (laughs) hello, Montana, for example. um, Right now, there's a discussion about seven key states, um, seven key states, North Carolina, Wisconsin, Michigan, um, Arizona, Nevada, Colorado, Colorado, all of which, just as a side note, have substantial Native American populations who face the greatest barriers to voting. But, um, yeah, those are states that are ones that could make a huge difference. But there are other states, too. Sorry. And I'll just say to challenge everyone, how many of you know someone that doesn't live in California? (laughs) Right? Most of you do. If not, let's talk about taking some time to go explore the United States. Um, But um, I challenge you all, much like to piggyback on that. And if you so choose to donate, thank you so much. Those funds go so far. However, I encourage the ways in which PPAP and other organizations have been able to increase access in the legislative branches and electing people is by sharing your stories. If you yourself were a patient, so many people have felt stigmatized or they can't talk about it or people want to spread that knowledge, call someone in another state have a conversation with them. My PhD is in religion, and so much social change has happened from the pulpit, the religious institutions themselves, from civil rights to women's rights to gay rights, even, even though people don't think about it, to women's rights. Those things start in religious homes, and it's come conversation. So I challenge each of you to call one, two, three people that you know that don't live in California that may live in one of these states or just to call someone so that way they're looking for someone maybe in Florida or maybe in South Carolina or maybe even in New York and when they go to that voting booth to make the right decision. And that's what PPAP does do. We do endorse pro-women's reproductive rights champions here in L.A. County, which is just a small little county as we all know. (laughs) Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice. If you want to look at the different um, kind of religious traditions, if you're speaking to someone and want that kind of knowledge, great source. Mm -hmm. Okay, another question? All right. Um, It's it's similar. Um, I don't know if we want to say more about it. It feels like pro-choice movement is always on the defense, thought suggestions to go on the offense. Did we kind of cover that enough? Go, go um, Planned it. Parenthood doesn't use pro-choice or 
pro-life language anymore, really. Um, we call ourselves women's reproductive health care champions. That's a better way to rephrase it because oftentimes the pro-choice, pro-life argument is very partisan, yeah. right? When I were to sit there and say pro-life, you can probably, some images come in your head. I say pro-choice the same way. And I talk, that's why PPAP is, a, they, we endorse and advocate for women's reproductive health care champions. That is anyone on any side of the aisle because guess what? Healthcare is healthcare, and if you're going to fight for a woman's safe, uh, a right to reproductive health care services, we got your back. I will also say that there are several pieces of legislation at the federal level. Just so people know, there is the Act for Women, which is hoping to codify Roe. So in case Roe falls via the courts, it would yeah. still be there federally. There are a couple of other kind of large national campaigns that are proactive. It's just our current uh, congressional situation has not allowed them to be passed. Okay. Um, maybe this would just want to clarify a little bit. You said the question is, you said abortion is legal in all 50 states. Please elaborate. Does that mean if you pay for it with your own money, not federal funds, you can get an abortion? So I think we were leading into your discussion with respect to that. Is there anything either you would like to add to that? So abortion is legal but restricted. Yeah. Right? And so that kind of, because what we have been hearing is people um, panicking and saying that abortion in these states with six-week bans um, is no longer legal in the United States. And so we think it's really important to spread the message that abortion is still legal in all 50 states, and it has just been heavily restricted since Roe v. Wade, um, since the backlash. Of course, as you mentioned, the Hyde Amendment prohibits federal funding toward abortion except in certain circumstances, right? And so Henry Hyde said, damn, if we can't make abortion illegal for all, we'll just have to make it illegal for poor people. Yeah. And that has continued. And there's also another campaign to stop the Hyde Amendment. It's not a repeal. It's just let's not put that uh, rider on to next year's you know, budgetary help. resolution yeah. is all it means. Um, and that is the ab all above all campaign. These are all campaigns that need volunteers, need people interested in need funds. Yeah. They've also got a ban on... Uh, the provision or funding for abortion um, services for women who are in the U.S. military. Yep. Oh, yeah. And so I think that's important to note yeah. that here in Los Huge. Angeles, we have had several intakes. You know, I get intakes and we help people figure things out all the time. We, y'all, folks who are veterans, for example, who have veterans benefits um, or who are actively, you know, overseas or here in the U.S. on active U.S. military duty, um, also have to pay for their abortion procedures out of pocket. Yeah. And keep in mind how high the level of sexual assaults is for mm -hmm. female service members. Yeah. And at Planned Parenthood Health Centers, um, it is a uh, no cost to sliding scale cost for anyone to access any type of the care that they would need. I, I'm speaking of them as a third person. PPAP does not have health care centers. We do not have patients. We advocate on behalf of those individuals. So if you were to go to, for example, a Planned Parenthood Los Angeles health care center, it's a sliding scale to no cost depending on your value uh, for many of the reasons in which um, mm -hmm. Ruth talked about. Next question. Can legislatures place restrictions on health care provided for women who might have abortion complications? That's a great question. Can you ask that again? <laughs> Can legislatures pla place restrictions on health care provided for women 
who might have abortion complications. Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. Legislators can, can do, do I mean, they could literally, I'll give this, this is a long story, but a short story. I was um, in Cabo. I actually finally tried to take a vacation. It did not work out. I came home early because I have a problem letting go. Um, but uh, individuals, I, I always like to have conversations with people most likely strangers who live in Kansas in this particular instance. And the individual, when I told them what I do, because I'm very proud of what I do, I said, I work for Planned Parenthood. Um, he goes, well, I don't agree with abortion. I said, okay, well, do you mind if we kind of like talk about this for a second, right? I said, okay, I'm left-handed, right? And I think all right-handed people suck, right? And I don't want anyone who's right-handed to be able to write right-handed, so I pass a law to have everyone who's right-handed have to write with their left hand and tie their right hand behind their back, right? And he was just like, and I said, how does that make you feel? Because I noticed he was right-handed, right? And he goes, well, I wouldn't want anyone telling me what to do with my own body. And I said, exactly. And I said, and that is why no one should pass a law that would be as crazy as the law I just proposed to you. So that's a long story. The short answer to the can they pass a law like that? The answer is yes, because yeah. anyone, if you have the majority support, could pass a law. Now, whether or not <laughs> we've seen some crazy laws in our times, but you know. Yeah, and if there, if, if yeah. that is like a more complex question, I'd also be happy to. Talk. I feel like there is more there than yeah. maybe came across in the question. EMTALA is a federal law, if I may, it's the Emergency Medical Treatment and Active Labor Act, and if somebody presents to, whoops, if someone presents at an emergency room and is having either an emergency or is an active labor, that hospital can't turn them away is the idea, right? And there is, right, absolutely. So California is obviously under EMTALA, as is the rest of the country. Um, so absolutely, if somebody presents with abortion complications and is having an emergency um, or is hemorrhaging or whatever it may be, even though that is very rare for an in-clinic abortion, a hospital has to take them. Absolutely. So there's no violation of EMTALA that should be, um, would be legal. At the same time, I will say one of, um, as was mentioned, one of the things that I focus on is religious restrictions of healthcare. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and something that we see is when people are miscarrying. So these are people who yeah. very much have wanted pregnancies. Yeah. They are in their 19th or 20 week of pregnancy. They have painted the nursery, chosen names, right? Um, and they, they are miscarrying, essentially. You know, they start cramping, they start bleeding, they go to the emergency room. Uh, most typically it's the one that's closest to them, right? Because it is an emergency. Um, if it is, uh, so, you know, they're taken and kind of assessed and um, treated. Uh, Catholic hospitals, um, and this happens in California as it happens uh, throughout mm -hmm. the country, uh, Catholic hospitals will often warehouse those women. And I know this because I have talked to a number of women who this has happened to in, the United, in California. Um, they won't tell them what is happening to their bodies, they won't tell them that they're not providing them um, pure treatment because the doctors and nurses in the Catholic facilities have to abide by the ethical and religious directives for Catholic healthcare services. So often we will see doctors, and we've, I've talked to many doctors who operate under these restrictions. There is a woman who is miscarrying and basically the doctor has to assess, has that fetus's heartbeat stopped or is she going to die? And if one of those things happens, they're allowed to complete the miscarriage, which is 
essentially doing an abortion procedure for a 19 to 20 week fetus. Um, often those doctors are calling nurses, or excuse me, nuns, <laughs> nuns, to ask for permission. And they'll say, these are her stats, she's going septic, um, you know, here is kind of the status of the fetus, right? And until a nun says, yes, you can complete the procedure, that woman is languishing in the bed, not knowing what's happening to her body, not knowing that her, you know, she is not going to have a healthy, happy baby. Um, and we've heard of that happening for literally about a week yeah. on the outer end. Um, one woman in particular I spoke with, again, this is in California. She and her husband are there um, in the hospital. And after a week, finally, a nun said, I'm going to take pity on you and tell you what's going on. Mm. If you had gone to the hospital across town, they would have had you in and out in two hours. This is not a viable pregnancy. I'm so sorry. And so she and her husband checked herself out against doctor's orders, went across town, got the abortion procedure, a.k.a. miscarriage management, and she was home within a couple hours. So that is not technically a violation of EMTALA. There are several cases being litigated right now in California and also across the country for issues around quote-unquote abortion in Catholic hospitals. Thank you. I just want to take a moment and really, in a prayer-like way, give a round of applause for helping us. You are our women's reproductive mm -hmm. health champions. Thank you. Jean, John, Ruth, Jonathan, you opened your Planned Parenthood downtown to a group of rabbis who came and visited and the warmth uh, of the environment, the education for elementary school kids about body image, uh, the range of services goes so far between what this whack-a-mole game, Ruth, that you're talking about, and yet the tools that we have are so wise to continue to fight the longest, longest struggle that justice, justice will continue to pursue. Uh, this will not end in, in one administration or Sandra Day O'Connor or one uh, president. And yet uh, our Torah is so clear that when two men are playing political football and there's a woman involved and there's a disaster, if there's no disaster, meaning there is an abortion, that, that pregnancy was terminated, that's pecuniary, that's financial. That's exodus. That's mishpatim. If there is a disaster, meaning that woman dies as a result, that's on us. And I see the intensity and the sincerity of all of us here. It's a life for life. We're talking about real lives. And uh, for many of us who know and are intimate with people who have lost pregnancies or have needed abortions and have really, really suffered through these moments, uh, your champions, uh, your institutions, in our homes. Um, so thank you all for being here to create this kind of space. I just want to alert you to two events coming up. November 22nd, David Pettit from the National Resource uh, Environmental National Defense Council, National Resource NRDC, National Resource Defense Council. David Pettit will be joining us November 22nd for a Shabbat service. November 3rd, I'm going down to El Paso with Trua to the border to experience what's happening there. And I'll be able to share a little bit about that on Shabbat in that November. Um, I want to thank Gina and Angela and Carol, our social justice committee, for all of you for coming out on a Sunday evening. I wish you health. Salvation in Reconstructionist Judaism is health. And that health is so precious and valuable. Thank you all so much.